Lord God, we thank you once again to be gathered here, gathered in your name, gathered uh, as your purchased people, purchased by your blood, purchased because of your great love for us, Lord. We thank you for your great love for us. We thank you that you uh, give us your word. Uh, What a blessing it is to have your word at our fingertips that to uh, to open it and hear you tell us who you are and to tell us who we are and um, and to as your word says to grow by it uh, to become equipped for every good work. Uh, but Lord, um, we need uh, we need your word more and more. And again, it's one of those things that we don't always make. Uh, the most use of and the, take the blessing for what it is. One, that we've been granted to believe it. And two, that we have it to freely read. And um, uh, But we thank you that we're here today. We thank that we can open your word and take a look at who you are and who we are. And we pray that as we do that, we pray you'll lead this time as to what you would have be said, what you would have to take root in our hearts. And um, uh, just let your word, as you say, go forth. And it does not return to you void, but accomplishes. It accomplishes the word, the the purpose for which you sent it. It means it does. It works in us. Your Your word, Lord, is a living thing. It says in your word that the word is living and active. And your word pierces to dividing joints and marrow. To dividing the mind and the spirit. And Lord, we stand in great need of you. We need you to penetrate with your word and to divide and separate and put away things that come in the way of what you have for us, Lord, and to do your work in us, Lord. So we pray, Lord, once again, that your word will do its work in us today and go with us and continue to work in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I got a little bit of allergies, and then I got a little choked up here and there, so uh, sorry for a little bit of sniffling in between. But I would like to start <clears throat> I would like to start with um, with a question um, of uh, what is compassion? And if you would just, maybe a few people might just maybe raise their hand and tell me what comes to mind when you hear the word compassion. Uh, Robert? So uh, uh, Robert says, uh, bearing one another's burdens. Anyone else just tell me what what came to your mind first? Uh, Being kind and caring. Uh, Mercy. Mercy. 
Okay, I didn't hear 100%, but I think it was you know, being concerned of someone's situation, which is really a good, a good thing. Um, the natural response, I think, you know, when we hear compassion is we tend to think of somebody in a dire situation and ourselves in a, in a much higher place to be able to reach down and do something about it and, and give something of what we have. And, um, and that might be what we see as compassion. You know, I think the world thinks compassion is a natural human instinct. We might think the same thing. You know, who could pass by someone on the street? I, I know sometimes we tend to question there are people who uh, take advantage out there, but when we see somebody in really dirty clothes and, and dirty long hair and unshaven, we kind of typically will think to ourselves that they're the real deal and they could use some help and we might reach out to them. And uh, that is uh, that is one way we can have compassion. Um, what actually I want to take a step to really is uh, what led me to this, um, to take a look at what compassion is when we look at what compassion is in the life of Jesus. Uh, my first sermon uh, I preached here was, I think, in 2008. And Pastor Lou happened to be working his way through the Gospel of John, and I think we were pretty close, and I asked I would like to preach on the woman at the well. For some reason, it was just something that had a special place for me. And it is a very, a very rich passage that has much, much, many things to say. It has the Gospel. You can call it the Gospel in a nutshell. Um, the whole gospel is presented there. Um, but there's a part there that just, the passion of Jesus, that just grabbed my heart. When I, even as far back as I can remember when I preached that sermon. So, uh, in John chapter 4, I'm just going to go through that as sort of a starting point today. It's uh, John chapter 4. It's Jesus and the woman at the well. And it starts in verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. He came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? 
for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water, springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you have spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. <clears throat> Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. <clears throat> and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to you, I who speak to you am he. I'd like to point out that not long after this, this woman went and told everyone, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Now, I don't see how that would be a great reason for rejoicing if someone just <coughs> outed you for being a loose woman. I'm telling you that you had five husbands. But that wasn't what Jesus was getting at. Jesus was speaking to her from a place of compassion. Um, and there's much, much being said here. And Jesus is <clears throat> coming to this woman. Uh, important to point out that it was midday. When they said the sixth hour, it was midday. People would not typically make themselves come out in the highest, hottest heat of the day to go lug water jugs. So the appearance here <coughs> is one, from everything we see, <coughs> we don't see any mention of other people. And it seems like <coughs> she may have been coming here to avoid uh, that she was probably not accepted by the other women of the town. She was likely an outcast because of of the fact that she had been with many men. Um, what impressed me about this and what stuck with me, you know, Jesus does come and, 
and do what is necessary because he is the living water. He has life giving love for her. He has the living water, but he has to have her put down her old way of life that is futile and that is leaving her empty and thirsty. But he does it with such great compassion. Um, when I was preaching on this, <clears throat> you know, this this was the full, you know, topic of, of my preaching was the whole text here. But um, the thing that led me to what I want to talk about today was as I was speaking on it, <clears throat> I just remember, you know, one of the things that I didn't plan to say that, you know, just came out as I, as I spoke. It just <clears throat> sort of touched me that Jesus did not look at this woman in the way that everyone else did. <clears throat> and it, just the way the words came out was, you know, here was Jesus seeing a woman for, you know, from where she really was, from where she really stood in her circumstance. And he saw her from the perspective of, you know, not, not being angry with her for her sin, but actually seeing how much sin had used her up. And he had the compassion. And he looked at her as someone who was letting herself be used and taken advantage of because because she was empty <clears throat> and looking for true fulfillment and true love. And um, I just remember, you know, <clears throat> touching on that subject and uh, I just caught someone's eye as I was preaching on it and uh, I knew where that person was in their life at the time. And I knew just, <clears throat> you know, those words were very meaningful for that person, <clears throat> you know, realizing that we make a lot of steps in our life from the wrong motivation. But Jesus does not want to condemn us like the woman caught in adultery. That was really just like another story that relates to this where we can see the great compassion of Jesus. And, um, you know, he takes the time they bring the woman caught in adultery. When they ask Jesus and they try to trap him, you know, what do we do with this woman? And you know, that kind of uh, even points out the fact that they kind of looked with some disdain on Jesus' compassion because they probably already had some expectation, you know, whether or not he... Because they saw him, you know, eating and drinking with sinners and, and, and reaching out to them. And they just wanted to wield the hammer and he wanted to wield, you know, to bring compassion and mercy. And they despised that because their hearts were in the letter of the law. They didn't know God's compassion because they, they studied the law and, and thought following the law was the way. And um, God always turns on our heads, uh, you know, our way of life. And uh, so it's not just the Pharisees that need to be turned to a new way of thinking, but it's often us. Um, but Jesus comes in, and that woman that's caught in adultery, you know, after he says, let, let the one with no sin cast the first stone, and who's, who's left there <clears throat> but the one who has no sin? And he says, 
Are there none left to condemn you? And he says, neither do I condemn you. And I just see that same compassion, you know, in Jesus, you know. And and he knew the same thing, you know. What was that woman's situation? Does it forgive the behavior and excuse it? No. But it looks at sin as, as, as what it is. Sin just uses us up and leaves us empty. You know, and Jesus had that compassion to restore, you know, and that was his nature. And so when I, when I look back to that part in the story where just Jesus just, I could see him, you know, instead of standing back there like one of us might, and, you know, we would call it tough love. We're like, well, maybe if you stopped running around with so many different men, your life wouldn't be a mess and maybe you'd have a few friends, you know. That might be a more typical response, but... Jesus, like I said, he really looked at her with that just looking at really where she was at and, you know, just to point her to to where where love is and where fullness is, and it's in, in him. But um, I want to take a couple, a little more look at compassion and where it is in Jesus. And uh, I want to look at the word compassion, actually, uh, it's interesting where it's most used to describe Jesus. We see um, it often translated in moved with compassion. Uh, it says, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were wearied and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. But the word that is used here is actually uh, a Greek word. And I'll try to say it, but I'm sure I won't get it right. Splak mitzomai. Splak mitzomai. It's a word that actually comes from a word meaning the insides, your, your, the entrails, the insides, the guts of a person. But when it's used here, it's actually... Um, it's actually a verb. It's actually that. And that's why the translation comes to moves in compassion because Jesus felt, you know, that, that wrenching inside his, his inner being that was the compassion. You know, we look at compassion and, and we, we think it's, we can often think of it as feeling sympathy for, well, I should feel sorry for someone in that circumstances, but but with Jesus, it's the core of his being. You know, I think it's a mistake that we think that God came here to earth and then learned compassion for us. Because Jesus said, I, I do nothing of my own. I do what I've learned from my Father. I do what I see the Father doing. So compassion is God's nature it's not something that Jesus put on Jesus put a lot off when he came here and we're going to get to that very soon um, but he his nature of what God is and what God's attributes are that is compassion the true compassion is what God is and um, so we see that word you know when Jesus looked Again, when he looked at the masses, it says, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with a compassion. 
for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. I often am, that often like ties into my mind when Jesus looked out at Jerusalem and he said, Jerusalem, how long I have I've wanted to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks. You know, I've wanted to gather you. But you wouldn't listen. The nature of God, as we sit there and we continue to rebel against Him, He just still has that longing for us to come to the good and the love and the mercy and the forgiveness that He has for us. It's ongoing. As, as the Scripture says, that love endures all things, bears all things. The love of God is just like that. It never ends. We see when Jesus saw a great multitude, uh, he was also moved compassion for them and healed their sick. Uh, Jesus was moved with compassion. There was a man uh, asking for healing, and Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him. I think it was the man who said, you know, are you willing? If you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus said, I am willing. Um, the story of a widow who had her son who was dead. Now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nine, and many of the disciples went with him. Uh, this is Luke chapter 7, uh, but he, if you just want to listen to it. He went into a city called Nine, and Many of his disciples went with him in a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. And again, that same word is used, even though it says had, had compassion instead of moved compassion, the actual word was the verb of that wrenching inside your guts that you you're just so moved and he said to her do not weep then he came and touched the open coffin and those who carried him stood still and he said young man i say to you arise so he who was dead sat up and began to speak and he presented him to his mother then fear came upon all and they glorified god saying a great prophet has risen among us. God has visited us, visit his people. That is, if you recall, the scriptures say he would be called God with us. And the report about him went throughout Judea and the surrounding region. But actually, we often see Jesus saying, telling people, don't go tell everyone that I healed you. See, God's mission in being God with us is to have compassion. When you look at that word in Latin, it actually comes from two words, cum and pati. Cum is uh, with, and pati is the word that passion comes from. It is to suffer with. Jesus did not choose to just have mercy on us. And we can sit and the, particularly this, the person maybe at a distance or even in our casual look at this could be, well, Jesus was God. So he had the power 
why not come and make everyone well? But that was really not what his mission was. It was a testimony to who he was. It showed he's a powerful, mighty God, a life-giving God, a God who has great compassion. But there's a reason why he told people not to go and tell. That's not what he wanted people coming to him for. He came into our lives to suffer along with us because our conversion is not the snap of a finger. While he could raise a dead man, that man was going to live and die again and still face uh, just judgment of God. So what God is, Jesus is interested in is the transformation in us, what he needs to do. And that power that he would release to us. Um, so we look at compassion and we look at the things that Jesus do and it's easy to say, I want to be like him. Well, if I had the power to raise the dead or heal the sick, I would. And we even like to think that, of course, I am a compassionate person. If I saw someone suffering, would I help them? Well, sure, you know, if I had a little extra money, I would put a few dollars in the person waiting or, or um, you know, if I had a little time, I might give a little time. But here's the question is, what happens when it costs something? What happens when we have something to lose, when we're putting something on the line? We live in a very competitive world. We live and we're conditioned to see everything as how, how good can I show myself to be? How effective can I show myself to be? How results-oriented can I be? Can I show results to show that I'm being useful? All these things are a part of the world we live in. We live in a world where there's great competition. And so our first inclination is to think, well, Jesus gives an example of how to be compassionate, so I'll go do what he does, right? Why don't I just emulate and do what Jesus does? That's all I have to do, right? Well, this is where God's word comes in and might challenge us. Uh, I would like to go to, I'm going to find the passage of Cain and Abel early in Genesis. Uh, forgot to take down the number, but Genesis 4. So in Genesis chapter 4, we see the familiar story of Cain and Abel. Starting at verse 1, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, and this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn 
of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So we look at this story and our first inclination is to think God's showing favoritism. But in fact, there are a few things there that actually indicate there was a little difference in the offering that they brought. Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. So he gave some of what he had. Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, which was a, considered the best portion. The fat portion was the, actually the desirable thing. It was a, it was a good thing. It was offering the, the first. So Cain was, um, I mean, Abel was making an effort. Abel was not trying to outshine Cain. But he was trying to give his, his motive was to give his best to the Lord. Now, God rightly corrects Cain. Why are you so angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Another text actually says you must master it. So God actually warns Cain that you're at a crossing point. You are actually looking at, you know, you're looking at this the wrong way. I'm telling you that if you do good, you will be honored as well. Your offering will be accepted. But sin is trying to tell you, make you angry with Abel. And he's challenged there. And um, as the story goes, and as we know the story goes, Rather than go out and give his best to the Lord and correct his behavior, he takes the easy path and get the person out of the way that's making him look bad. So he goes and takes Cain out to the field and he murders him. And then when God says, where is your brother? (laughs) Which God already knows where his brother is. He's asking uh, Cain to confess. He said, oh, am I my brother's keeper? And God says, what have you done? The voice of your brother. Brother's blood cries out. The point here is, here's a story that shows the sin nature. What happens when we face a competitive situation? What happens when we're at work and there's layoffs happening and the guy next to you is outshining you? What happens when he's saying things to other people to make you look bad? Do we have that same compassionate spirit anymore? Or might we take the opportunity to crush them in some way? wish them well, would we kind of be happy if they were taken out of the picture even by our not doing? Would we have compassion in our heart then? That's when the challenge becomes greater. And this is where Scripture calls us to look at the truth that I'm not in a position to just emulate Jesus because my heart, our sinful hearts, are nothing like his heart. Our hearts quickly turn to the self-preservation and and and. And, and anger and resentment take root and are parts of our sinful nature. So that's the warning of this passage. That's the look at who I truly am in my heart. Our mistake when we look at scriptures is to always put ourselves, you know, we hear the Pharisees and, the, and then the, the, you know, the other people that were following Jesus and we're like, well, we're not the Pharisees, you know. And we look at this and we're like, well, you know, I go to church, I bring, I make offerings to God. I'm not, I'm not like Cain, I'm 
I'm Abel. But no, you know, do we give God our best? No, then I'm not like Abel. I'm like Cain. You know, and then and then when somebody looks a little better than me or has a little more success for me, you know, then I might be resentful. Then I might, you know, not associate with them. Maybe I might not reach out to them because they don't need my help in my mind. They don't need a blessing from me, you know. Uh, so anyway, that's a look at our, our nature, our true nature. So these are the things that get in the way of compassion. And these are the things that point out that no, compassion is not the natural response in a, in a lot of our life. Compassion is that little piece, that little corner of our life when things get really out of hand, when somebody gets really hurt bad, when somebody's bleeding in the street, and they're like, oh, I'm a compassionate person. I'm going to help this person. But that's not the exceptional compassion that displays Christ-likeness to the world. And that's where the challenge is. And this second scripture that really just is just one of two examples is uh, Matthew chapter 18, the unmerciful servant. It starts, starts at verse 21. So, verse 21, Then Peter came to him, to Jesus, and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Up to seven times, because that's what was written in the law. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king, so I want you to realize we're entering into what Jesus is taking up, showing us a parable now to express what he wants to express. And he said, uh, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. A talent is 75 pounds of whether it's silver or gold, I don't know, but 10,000 talents is like an, an amount that just any working man, you know, it'll be like we owe somebody, you know, a billion dollars or more, you know. But he was not able to pay. His master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me. Patience is another word that comes very similar you know, it's, it's, it's long-suffering. It comes with that word, have patience with me. So he's almost begging for compassion, and I will pay you all. Then the master of the servant was moved with compassion. See, Jesus is painting the story, and the master of the story is a parallel to the Father. Because each one of us, when we come to him with our sin debt, has a debt that we can't repay. But here comes this man, and he says, Forgive me, you know, have you know, have patience, and I will pay you all. Now the master knows that he doesn't say, Okay, well you could pay me, you know. Pay me a, a copper coin every week, you know, out of your paycheck, you know, until you're five million years old. He knows it's not payable, so then he's the master moved with compassion, released him and forgave the debt, 
He took the burden on himself. He took the loss. The master took the loss. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid his hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not. But he went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. Now the parallel there was if we were sent to pay our debt until it was paid, it's eternity in hell. That's what the truth is. But what is our nature? See, Jesus is telling this parable to make us look at ourselves because he paid the price for our sin and released us from a debt we could never pay, from eternity of suffering that we could never be released from. He does that, and we know that. We know that here, but it's just not always here. And we go out into the world and tell me, you know, I guess it's kind of funny because something happened to me yesterday. I looked at it as a little a little dart from the enemy trying to distract me as I was trying to drive and meditate on the things that were coming on this sermon. And a guy ran across the stop sign and cut me kind of close, so I blew my horn. And he wanted to tell me I was number one by holding out one finger out the window as he went by. <laughs> and listen, you know what's... Tell me, you know, you've been in these situations. Somebody wrongs you, and then they wrong you a little more. And what's in your heart? I think I was a little bit more like that guy that had a had more of the spirit of wanting to put my hands around his throat than I wanted to have loving kindness. Um, and you know, I stopped and I prayed, and I just, you know, this whole thing came to mind. It's, I, I just I used this passage in Sunday school one time, and it came back many times. But you know, the reality is, there's God's word really showing me where my spirit is, you know. Jesus, when he got done going through the, the, uh, the different things, you know, in the, um, uh, the Beatitudes, when he stood in, in the Sermon on the Mount and say, you know, blessed are you when you are humble and meek, and, and uh, blessed are you when they persecute you and wrong you, you know. And he said, be compassionate as your father is compassionate. It's not a simple call. It's a near impossible call, you know. And we look at it. So this, these two things are to show us and remind us who we are. No, we're not really compassionate at the core of our being like Jesus is, like God is. And Jesus came to show us who God is by being filled with compassion. Um, so what do we do? Let's take a look just a little more. You know, it's easy, again, for us to take the foolish and the surface look at, well, it was easy for Jesus to have compassion. He had all the power. No one could take his power. He didn't have to worry about competition. He doesn't have to worry about nobody looking better than him. He just goes and, like, waves his hands and makes everything all right. But, no, that's not really the walk of the Savior. And 
in the second chapter of Philippians, we are actually shown what our call is along with the comparison of what Jesus' mission on earth truly was. So if we look at Philippians chapter 2, again, a little deeper, closer look at the challenge and what, what we're really called to. I don't know about you, I think we're all here for a similar reason. It does us no good to just, you know, the world wants to, you know, it's good to be positive and it's good to encourage people, but the world sometimes paints a picture that the best thing is to 100% saying, you're doing a good job, you're doing great, you're awesome, you're wonderful, but you know what? If we're going to be what God wants us to be, we actually have to hear how we're not so awesome and we're not so wonderful because... For us to reach for that, we will just, that's our problem, is we will remain in the status quo unless we're challenged. And that's the blessing of God's Word, that it does, it does dig deep, it does penetrate and challenge us. And here's Philippians chapter 2. This is, uh, you know, Paul from prison, you know, talking about his suffering and their, their suffering as well. You know, they said, you're going to suffer, you're going to, you know, I hate when I pre-print it because I always want to go back a couple more verses, you know. So, I'm going to get there myself and just maybe back up a couple verses into the end of chapter 1 in Philippians. And he says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. And that's what he's going to go and paint in the next verses. You're having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. He's saying, listen, it happened to Jesus, it happened to me. Your call is to suffer as well for the gospel. And I want to point out here that, you know, he said you're called to stand fast in one spirit, one mind, striving together. The call um, to a compassionate life is a call very much. We're going to see um, it's wrapped up in unity is the place where we're called to be Christ's body. Um, but let's go to chapter 2. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit if any affection and mercy, these are things that we all have tasted of if we've been with the Lord. He says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition 
or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now it sounds simple if you breathe, breeze past it, but there he goes over that line that is really not in our human nature because we like being affectionate to one another and hearing how each other's doing and encouraging each other and hugging each other. But what about the situations where somebody gets on your nerves, where some, something becomes competitive, where somebody's wronging you? That can happen even here. So this is really, I want to point that in the body of Christ is really the first place. That's our place of practice where we can actually should be able to have a little more understanding for each other's faults. But we have to practice that. Um, but let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Let's talk about this is where it's like, as we go on here, it's letting go of ourselves. Jesus left his high and mighty throne in heaven. And it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. That means it would not be wrong for him to take all his glory and say, Here I am. I'm God. Worship me in my fullness. There's nothing wrong with him coming and doing that. But then... What was his mission? To save us, to have compassion on us. Um, so, in order to carry out that mission, this was his call. This was his obedience to the Father. This was his love for the Father. But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we can hear that and we can understand that. We can say, yeah, Jesus was God and he left his mighty throne, and he let himself take the form of a servant. He let himself serve and serve us, serve us all the way to the cross, and to take my sin and suffering. Yet there's still something in there, in there that can make me not want to serve my brother. He was the greatest and the one without sin, and he laid down his life and laid it all down and suffered for us. But it's just, it's not in our nature. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence only, how much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless, harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice in you all. For that same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Paul had taken a great spiritual journey, and he was kind of sharing where he was in that place in his heart, where he said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
he was actually seeing that purpose and that suffering with, that he was suffering with them, with others, with the gospel. That call is not normal. That call is not in our nature. And uh, I took a couple of clips from, uh, I think they're from the same author, but I know a couple of them are from this author, Henry Nowen. Uh, says, compassion asks us to go where it hurts, to enter into the places of pain, to share in brokenness, fear, confusion, and anguish. Compassion challenges us to cry out with those in misery, to mourn with those who are lonely, to weep with those who are in tears. Compassion requires us to be weak with the weak, vulnerable with the vulnerable, and powerless with the powerless. Compassion means full immersion in the condition of being human. And we need to challenge ourselves on this because, you know, we enjoy the blessings of fellowship and there's nothing wrong. You know, our pastor always uses the words, you know, if you have some good things, if you have a happy gathering and food together and, and fellowship, and it says God adds no sorrow to it. He gives us times of rest and times of refreshing. But it's not our nature to really make it our mission to seek to, to go in and, and to go truly suffer with other people. It's a lot easier for us to accept an invitation to a party where there'll be fun and laughing and happiness and food and drink and an enjoyable time together. It's a lot harder for us to get motivated to take an hour-long ride to the hospital to see somebody in the hospital or to go sit with somebody who's, um, you know, just struggling with something and, and, and needs somebody to, you know, maybe they're too broken to be out in the world and, 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 and our inclination is to go, come on, you got to cheer up, you got to come out. No, compassion says go and sit down and sit and be quiet and, and mourn with that person and grieve with that person and struggle with that person and, and bear with them and, and be with them in their situation. You know, like I said before, where Jesus looked at that woman and didn't just see this woman who was living a life as, as a harlot and running around with different men, he, he saw somebody who was kind of being you know, used up by the world, and he wanted to guide her from that. So we want to be with people in, in such a way that, that we walk that walk together. That's what it is to bear somebody's burdens. It's wonderful, even, you know, all these things are good. You know, you make a meal for somebody and you drop it off. But to really, really, really go to those dark places and to really try to understand the depths of someone as Christ understands the depths of us, that's the deeper calling. That's what's a little different from the world. See, the world in its, in its secular humanism will do some good things and they actually, you know, say, feel good about themselves because they accomplish something and make a change in the world. But these calls, when, you know, when there's no recognition, when nobody sees it, when nobody but our Father in heaven, who we should be pleasing, because this, this is what Christ did. This is the example that he gave. I had... I had a priest, because I did grow up Catholic and was Catholic, uh, practiced at a Catholic church as a, a decent part of my adulthood. And he told a, a story of as he was probably finishing up all his studies and his preparation to become a priest, he went to a retreat. And many of, uh, many of you who maybe, how many have been to a retreat? Anybody can raise your hand. You've been in some kind of retreat there. Either maybe like a full day retreat or overnight retreat. So the typical thing is, you know, 
there might be a little some fine times of fun and things, uh, but there's also times of coming together and hearing some teaching and some some lecturing, sort of, you know, some opening of God's word, something that will take us and bring us. You know, we're, we're dedicating like a day or a weekend to be brought a little closer to the Lord. So, you know, the typical format might be, you know, you come in Friday night and you hear hear a little speech, and you know, Saturday morning, and then have a little time in between and breakfast and some alone time and. Saturday afternoon and Saturday night and Sunday morning. So you got a few different times of gathering to hear something really meaning and fulfilling and something that's going to stir your thought and make you, you know, go deeper in your retreat. And so this priest is telling the story, and it's a true story, and he said we get there on Friday night, and um, the person stood up and probably said the little typical introductions of, you know, where things are and what what's going on for the weekend, and it came time to give his message, and he says, "Early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up to pray, and he said this, and he sat down and he left, and they're like." Okay, well, you know, it's kind of a good start. That's nice. Let's go have dinner. And they sat down for their next talk after dinner. And the guy stood up. And he said, early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up to pray. And he did this Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, Saturday night, Sunday morning. And it sounds ridiculous, but when you look a little deeper, you look at the life of Jesus, you see, we want the power to heal. We want the ability to heal. But what's the path that Jesus took? He took the path of suffering, and he took the path of prayer. And that example is given... find a couple of examples. If I don't find them quickly, I'll say them off the top of my head. Actually, here's a brief... Well... Well, as you know, you know, there are times in the Scripture where it says, you know, early in the morning, Jesus went out to pray. Jesus prayed all night sometimes. He was out to pray. And it says, Jesus frequently withdrew to quiet places to, to pray. Jesus and the nature of who he is, God God is Trinity. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and Jesus lived his life on earth. He still was not who he is without connection to the Father. And he gives that example to us, and he does it, and he needed it. I believe he needed it. I believe he needed, as, this, as living in the human flesh, he needed to go from all the people that were coming to him and, and needing from him that he needed that quiet place and he needed to go back and be refreshed with the Father. And it says he obeyed the Father and he did what the Father called him to do. And Jesus, Jesus thought it was worthy to stop and ask the Father, what is it you want me to do? Father, what do you want me to do? Even to the point of Gethsemane going, Father, if this cup may pass me, take it. But you're well done. This is the example of who who God is, a God who loves us 
that deep. His love for the Father is that deep that it overflows to us. And this, you know, someone pointed this out to me. And the Trinity is, is something that we might, there's something in the Trinity that when you look at people who might worship another God, particularly a, a singular God, is there something missing there? God being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father and Son have ability to have an everlasting, eternal love. Being eternal beings before we were created, love existed before we did. It was not. It was there. It's part of the being of who God is. And because God is not one, there actually can be love between the Father and the Son. And that love between the Father and the Son is what Jesus maintained and sought and had has it even when he was a young man? He's found in his father's in the temple. Why? Where, where, where were you, son? We were looking all over. For you. He's like, didn't you know? I had to. I had to be in my father's house. But we miss this, and we we look at it, and we like we're thankful in a way, and we see what Jesus did for us, and then we go out and we try to do it by ourselves, and we fail miserably, and the world sees the the things in us, that the behaviors that shouldn't be there. And listen, we shouldn't beat ourselves up over the single failures, but, but we should strive for something more. And we should realize we should also, you know, on one hand, not be beating ourselves up over our failures, but we also should not be complacent and saying, well, Jesus died for all my sins and I'm human and this is the best I could do. Because Jesus is saying, greater things you will do because I go to the Father. I send you the Holy Spirit. He sends us that gift. And you look at me and I sit here and I break up over these things because I know I'm so lacking and so poor and making use of what he's given. He died to pour out his Holy Spirit. He said, it's good that I go away because if I don't go, I can't send you the counselor, the, the spirit of truth. I can't send you, you know, the spirit to be with you. Jesus and John, John is, boy, if you want to be put in the right mind spec, read, read through the later chapters of John. You know, what Jesus said, this was another thing I preached on, so it's kind of useful. I preached on John 17 where Jesus prayed for us a couple years ago. But just kind of from memory, I know like in, in verse 14, you know, Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, also believe in me. My Father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would not have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. If we want to be where he is also, when he is opened up this union with him and with each other through the community of the church and through personal prayer and the unity of the Holy Spirit, if we're not making use of that, we're not. If we're not in touch with the love and, and of the Father and the love and the mercy and the forgiveness, because we're bound close to to Him, then that love's not going to live in us. That love, when it gets tested, when it gets challenged, when it's competitive, when I have to look out for my own interests, when I get hurt, then what what's in me without God? That's all that I have to offer. So I have to be drawn to Him. Jesus said, if you see me, you've seen the Father. I do what the Father, I do the works of the Father. 
you know. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him, and we will make a home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's has sent me. Jesus' passion, suffering with us, was because he loved the Father, because he loved us. Those things come together and they're inseparable. His love between him and the Father overflowed to his love for us, and he loved us so greatly that he laid down his life for us. And we're not going to be able to give up any part of ourselves unless we get to that place of surrender. Jesus left the highest place and surrendered it all. We shouldn't be afraid of being, you know, letting go of some things, you know, to give up, you know. John the Baptist, when he came, he goes, yeah. Or I forget if it was John the Baptist or Jesus said, somebody takes your cloak, give me your tunic as well. Because these things are all passing. He's, he's trying to make the point that, like, this is not what it's about. I've come to reconcile, like, humanity to myself. Jesus, great prayer for us. Well, in 15, chapter 15, we're reminded, he says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. And of a, I remember one of the brothers, we, he did a little talk in the men's group, and he said, you know, I had a grapevine, and I had to clean it up. I had to cut some of the branches, and I cut some, and I took some, and I went up front to put some in the trash and gather it together. He's like, by the time I got back, those branches were already starting to wither. And Jesus gives us that reminder that he is, he is the life. His love and compassion and life is what flows to us through him. What is Jesus' great prayer for us? It's in chapter 17. Jesus' great prayer after he prayed for his disciples for their immediate mission. He says, I do not pray. This is John. If you want to turn, John chapter 17 chapter 20, or you can just listen along. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and that you have loved them, and that you have loved me. The world will know by our love for each other. See, we sit there and we say, pray pray for my brother and my sister and my cousin. They're not saved. Would you pray for them? Pray for a guy at work, you know, he's, he needs to know the Lord, he doesn't know the Lord. But then we overlook in a big way, it's not that we don't do it at all, but we overlook God's way of drawing those people to himself as when they look at us, they will see him. And the only way they're going to see him is if like, we're deliberate about our time with him and deliberate about letting him truly change us. You know, I always say it's just, God always puts together even the music. Change my heart, oh God. May it be like you. That's not a snap of the finger. That's 
That's why God came to suffer with us. You see, he couldn't snap his finger and make us like him. So he became like us to lead us to be like him. Uh, a great uh, radio uh, preacher, Paul Harvey, said there was a man who like didn't go to church with his family to Christmas. And there was a big snowstorm, and he saw these birds like out in the snowstorm, like kind of in the cold. And he actually felt sorry for them, and he w- wanted to lead them into the barn, and he tried to turn on a light, he tried to throw down some bread, and they just were scared. And they ran away. And he said to himself, Oh, if I could become like them, if I could become a bird, then they wouldn't be afraid of me. Then I could lead them to the path of salvation, you know, to safety. And he realized in his mind, you know, wow, that's what God did. He came to be like us, to suffer with us. But he asked us to take that difficult journey of suffering because the world, that's the battle between the flesh and the spirit. The flesh wants instant gratification and wants comfort and, you know, and, and we have we have natural fear and anger and resentment and those things that are part of the human world. But if we take those things to God in prayer, he washes them away. Just like that little story where I told you, you know, that person that cut me off when I was feeling, I could have been like Cain, you know, how many times that story came to me, you know, when I had a challenge in my life where God says, sin is crouching at your door. He's warning you that if you take this in this direction, you're going to bear the fruit that sin bears, which is destruction and death and sorrow and sadness. So this is a, a daily walk that we have to take, is to, to let him take the, every circumstance of our life and make, make prayer to the point of where he's not so far away. So we don't walk out from his mercy and forget about it and then be like the unmerciful servant if we spend more more time. He'll do that transforming where people will say to you things like, wow, I can't believe you can't believe you said you're sorry to that person. They were wrong. Why? Well, you know what? I just wanted to make peace because my master was merciful on me. So this is the call. This is the call that Jesus, if we were to be like him, it's not from watching what he does. It's for participating in the life that he gives us in his spirit, that it's going to him in prayer, it's getting together, not only in fun and fellowship, which is good, but it's praying together. You ever look at some of the people you've had occasion to pray with a few times? All of a sudden you have a different perspective on their life. So, you know, one of the things I did want to mention is when, when you pray, when you maybe when you're having a little challenge with someone, whether it's here or at work or somewhere else, when you pray for them, your eyes may open up a little differently and the Lord will ask you to take a step back and to look a little deeper. And maybe that person who's really grumpy in the morning has, you know, a sick wife or child in the hospital or or has financial things where they're about to lose their house or, you know, a sick parent, their elderly parent that they got to go home and spend hours with. Anyway, it's it could be anything, but that's not going to cross our mind if we're not prayerful, if we're not people of prayer, people who pray with the Father, with the Son, in the Spirit. So that's the call, is to, to go back to that, to stop trying to do it on our own and thinking, I read it, I heard it, I know what it's about, I'm going to go do it. I can't, can't. The Bible tells us over and over and over, and we prove it out in our lives. Every time we try to do it alone, it becomes a mess. I can't, I can't. I need, I need God, I need Him. Every hour, like the prayer says, I need Him. I'm never going to change further, I'm never going to go further. If I don't do that, so this 
I don't know, this was greatly challenging to me. I hope we as a church body take that and, and realize that, you know, we go and ask God. I'm, I'm reminded when, when they said, look at all these people, they need something to eat. And Jesus said, you give them something to eat. He was about to multiply the loaves and the fish, but he said, you move, you do something, you participate, you're part of this. You're a part of the whole thing. So we have to be our part, and our part is being connected to him, being devoted to him in prayer and, and letting, him, letting him make changes in us and let his light shine on the dark spots that we're afraid in. Human nature is to hide like Adam and, and, and pretend it didn't happen like Cain, you know. Uh, what, what, what brother? I don't know where my brother is. I don't know, we try to hide and, and not face the things. But when we do, we get mercy and forgiveness, and then we become more merciful and forgiving people. So hope, uh, I hope this is something we'll carry in our hearts and take it to the prayer room, take it to our personal prayer. Be reminded, you know, when we're on the computer and we want to look at another page, you know, again, you know, Facebook is, like, nice to keep in touch sometimes with people. But you know what? When there's, we got to look at the little things that, so foolishly, like, making us run out of time that, you know, oh, I don't have time to pray this morning, I'm in a hurry, but what are the couple of things I could have put aside, you know, what are the things I could have put aside at some point in my day that are less worth, I mean, gosh, it's worth missing a meal if you think about it, it's such a simple, Jesus didn't eat for 40 days, and he said, turn these loaves, the devil said, turn these loaves into bread, he's like, I, I, food of God is, you know, Man lives by every word that comes out of mouth, out of mouth of God. And when the disciples came back from the moment at the well, they were like, you know, you know, did you have some food? He's like, my food is to do the will, the one who sent me. We should, we should have that in us more. So that's all. And I didn't think I was, I was afraid I won't fill the time, but I did. I hope it wasn't too much. I hope uh, you take this in your heart and. Um, Oh, Brother Robert, he's looking at me. I'm going to ask Brother Robert to close us in prayer.